Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, to organize tonight's event. Um, this is a Monday night philosophy, even though it's Tuesday afternoon. We've been doing this series for about 10 years at the Commonwealth Club. Tonight, we're going to skip right over two really big questions. Those big questions are, why do we exist? And who is the culprit who's responsible for that? And we're going to go right to a bigger question, which is, what are we doing here? What are we doing with our time? But we're going to skip over those two big questions based on a couple of assumptions. Uh, first assumption is that we actually do exist. There are theories that we're all part of an illusion, uh, that maybe we're somebody's dream. There's a lot of unreal type explanations. It doesn't really matter uh, to us whether we're real or unreal, does it? Because uh, we experience what we experience and whether we can prove something or not about our experience really doesn't matter too much. It's an interesting part of the whole analysis of, of our shared reality is, you know, what can we prove and what can't we prove? And the word prove is thrown out all the time. Um, but proof is really something uh, that's confined to certain areas in mathematics and, and not much else. Everything else is a theory, and we're trying to get as close as we can to a, a shared understanding of our shared reality. And uh, whether we share a reality that is a dream or whether it's real, that really doesn't make too much difference. So we'll just set that question of why aside. And we'll talk about this, uh, what's the assumption in the second one. Who is the culprit who's responsible for this? Well, you know, we don't have much information about that, do we? Um, it seems like every once in a millennium, somebody comes by and hints that they know, you know, who's responsible for it and tells a story about it. But no one has really stood up, owned it, and said, I'm responsible for it, and demonstrated that they really were responsible for the fact that we're all here. And so it really doesn't matter there either, because until someone does that, we really don't know who we should punish. So. We'll go right to the main question for today, which is, what are we doing here? Well, there's a short answer to that question, and the answer is, we're pursuing happiness. And we're pursuing happiness and love and passion and confidence, emotions that we enjoy experiencing. And while we're pursuing those, um, how do we go about pursuing them? Well, we do it through desire. And that's a big part of what it is. But before we talk about the patterns, that are in that. I'd like to mention a couple of other things about why we really don't have to be so worried about the attempts at answering this question before. You get a little perspective on that. First, if you just imagine, for example, that you were the inventor of the television and you never heard from anybody about that fact. That's probably the way it is. A whole group of, of people probably invented the television, little pieces to it. But let's just assume there was one person who invented the television. And then they wanted to be recognized for that in some way or another. Now, as you were the inventor of the television, looking out on the billions of people who enjoy watching television, which would you prefer? The persons who watch television, really enjoyed it, um, and had a great time with it, but they didn't really bother to try to find out who you were? Or... The person who said, oh, inventor of the television, we think you're wonderful. Um, they, they, they create rituals to the person who invented the television and uh, made buildings and monuments to the person who created the television. Uh, but they actually never turned the television on. Now, 
of those two kinds of responses, which would you prefer if you were the inventor of the television? Now, for those of you who are raised on the Gospels, you probably recognize that's one of Jesus' parables. Basically said, you know, it's not somebody who just says, you know, God, you're great, that makes any difference. It's the ones who, who live the life that he's trying to tell you about. So I don't think we have anything to worry about from any inventor of this. If he really wants credit, he'll step forward. He'll, he'll prove it. That just hasn't happened yet. And, the, and, and so all the things that are said about, you know, that happiness is a sort of weak goal or a bad goal or has a bad rep, I think we can really overlook it. And I, I think there's logic behind that too, even religious logic. And that's not the logic that I follow, but it is still uh, very effective. Uh, Thomas More had a great argument um, about the logic of pursuing happiness in life. He said, if, if God didn't want us to be happy and he wanted us to be miserable in this life, then we're doing it all wrong. Then what we should be doing and what Jesus should have told us to do, he shouldn't have said, be kind to the poor, be kind to those who suffer. He shouldn't have told the Good Samaritan parable. Instead, what he should have done <laughs> is he should have said, you know, you're supposed to be miserable for this life so that you can be happy in the next. It's a big reward. In order to get that reward, you have to be miserable. And therefore, we should all try not only to make ourselves miserable, but everybody else miserable too, so that they can get the big reward. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Blaise Pascal's uh, wager, you'll see that I just turned it on its head. And it, and it really does seem to make more sense in the other direction. If somebody did create this and did create us, uh, they should be very, very pleased that we're trying to figure it out. And I'm going to go with that and, and just accept that as an assumption because I'm going to try to figure this out. Um, when we try to figure something out, we have a lot of people working on it. You know, There are probably millions of scientists trying to figure out what our shared reality is, and there are even a few philosophers who are trying to figure that out too. Um, and it doesn't really matter if other people are spending their time not trying to figure it out. An analogy for this is, is pretty simple. Um, I think the best thing to think about from previous attempts to explain what our shared reality is, is that they're like early versions of the software program. Now you, you have astronomy 1.0. So astronomy 1.0 is basically astrology. People thought that there was a dome over the sky. Uh, in that dome, there were a lot of pinpricks, light came through it, and they were pictures in, in the dome of different animals or men or gods doing different things. That was our idea about what was going on in the sky. That's astronomy 1.0. Well, thanks to science, we're at about astronomy 25.4 at this point. But that doesn't mean that everybody's moved on. No, a lot of people still like astronomy 1.0. They think that you know, if, if, if the planets you know, go through Capricorn, it means something. Now, it doesn't matter that we've already figured out that one, there's no dome, two, there's no pinpricks in anything, uh, three, the stars that are in those constellations are extremely far apart from where we think they are and how they look. Because people have their emotional experience and their intuition tells them this is what it means. Now, intuition and intuitional revelations are put on one side and intellectual reasoning is on another. And why? Did the Greeks put so much emphasis on reasoning? They weren't the only ones who did, but they really put a lot of emphasis on it. And it's because we have this shared reality, or we think we do, 
Um, it could be that we're all dreaming different things or that you're all part of a dream that I'm having. It's highly unlikely, highly unlikely. Uh, we seem to have, there's too much consistency in what we experience, both physically and even in our minds, uh, for, for that to be a likely answer. But the question is, how do you get from everybody's intuition where they just feel in their gut that they're right about something? Uh, we, we have lots of people in our political environment today who do the same thing. And we, we find that unconvincing when people do that because just one person saying what they feel, they might be right. But if there's no way to demonstrate that they're right, it doesn't do anybody else a lot of good. And basically we are trying to come up with an explanation of the shared reality um, so that we can understand something about what we're going through. Because, you know, we're, we're sitting on this planet and there's trillions of minds here. Uh, we don't know whether there's minds on any other planet. It doesn't really make any difference. There's too many here to deal with already uh, for anybody. And so we have all these minds. Everybody is experiencing the universe just in this little piece of, of, of land that we have called the earth out in one corner of it. And what do we have to base it on? What do we have to work with? Well, what we basically have, it's a little bit like the situation where a thousand of us all went to a play um, and then there was a fire, we all left, the, the, the whole theater burned down, all the manuscripts, all the scripts of, of the play disappeared, all the uh, actors were burned unfortunately in this event, but the audience completely left. And then the audience of a thousand people had to get together and tell each other what they remembered from the story and to try to reconstruct it. Well, it's a lot easier to do that, which is almost impossible to do, um, than it is to do what we're trying to do here with our shared reality. So people focus on different little pieces of it. But fortunately, it's a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. Parts of it can be clear and parts of it can be completely ununderstandable. Um, and yet we can focus in on one part or another and actually make some progress on that part. So big questions aside for today, uh, always very interesting to talk about them, but put them aside for today and say, what is it that we're doing here? And what we're doing here is we're pursuing happiness. And even when we don't think we're pursuing happiness, we actually are. Whenever you think that mm, happiness is not worth it, the people who, who believe that happiness is not something that they pursue, uh, they don't think it's a worthwhile thing. What's worthwhile is duty and um, working hard and making sure that you follow all the rules so that you get the reward, whatever that reward is. But even then you're doing it because of the reward, the future reward. And the entire time that you're doing it, you're feeling good about yourself for following those rules, saying you're going to get the reward in your own mind. And that feeling in your own mind is the feeling of happiness. And, and you have it the whole time if you believe in what you're doing. So there is no way to get around the inner inherent way that we deal with life, which is we're here, we wanna be happy. Our method of doing that is to try to fulfill a desire. Now, why is that true? Because that's the pattern. If you step back from it and try to figure out what the pattern is, the pattern is that we in our pursuit of happiness are trying for that emotion. What is that emotion? What are the elements to that emotion? Now. Here's an example of where, for example, I depart from the ancient Greeks. Ancient Greeks thought that everything was up, there were opposites, and it was the coexistence of those opposites that created the tension in life and created creation, etc. Um, happiness and unhappiness clearly being one of those opposites. 
But if you look at it carefully, they're not really opposites. And the pattern that I, at least I see in, in, in these emotions, and these emotions are, are fairly well understood and talked about for thousands of years, obviously, and no new insights in this area except for to focus in on a definition which encapsulates what people have been saying about it. And that is that happiness is the emotion caused by the fulfillment of a desire. Now, unhappiness is the emotion caused by the non-fulfillment of a desire. So the only difference between them is whether you fulfill the desire or you don't fulfill the desire. And I think if you just think about it for just a very short amount of time, you'll say, yeah, that, that makes sense. They're not really opposites. They're both emotions. They're both based on desires and, and what we do with them. And the difference in the emotion is whether we fulfill the desire or whether we didn't fulfill the desire. Well, that gives us some really good insight into how to deal with our pursuit of happiness because we don't have to deal with the fact that it's an emotion. There's nothing we can do about it. Our emotions are automatic. There are automatic mental responses. There's about a dozen of them um, that are the main ones that we experience. Um, and I've talked about that uh, other times on the, at the Commonwealth Club in the past. So we're going to skip right over that. But we're going to deal with these two, happiness and unhappiness, because what we're trying to do is avoid the one and, of course, gain the other. And the whole trick to getting and avoiding is, do you fulfill your desire or do you not fulfill your desire? But what people don't focus on is, how do you fulfill a desire? How do you not fulfill a desire? What are those causes? And also, which desires are a good idea to try to fulfill? Another thing that is missed, and we'll talk a little bit later too, what are our real desires? Actually, our motives for having desires of, of a particular kind, like to buy a house, buy a car, have a wife, that kind of thing. Our motives for those things are our real desires. Not that the other desire is not real, but they are the more valuable desire. They are the desire, the motives are the one that puts the most coloration into our experience of our happiness. Because whether the motives get fulfilled or not makes a huge difference. And I'll, I'll go back to that a little bit later. So the desires, the desires we pursue are the crux of this. And a lot of people who have looked at life as human life, not a lot of people, but some of the main leaders have looked at life and said, you know, desire is really our problem. Even having desires is a problem. And therefore, one should attain nirvana or enlightenment or something like that. You should, should leave human life behind. Human life is, is just a veil of tears, of great misery, etc. Because, uh, because desire always upsets everything. And if you look carefully at what I just, you know, analyze, as I analyze it this way, it's not desire that gets in the way. It's not fulfilling the desire that gets in our way. That's what makes us unhappy. Having desires by themselves don't, doesn't mean anything. They drive us, um, but by itself they don't. And by the way, the desire for enlightenment and the desire for nirvana is also a desire. And so you, you, people talk about the bliss of nirvana or the bliss of enlightenment, that kind of thing. And that's because you think that's the only desire worth getting. Everything else is put aside. You get a one-track mind. You try for that one thing. And if you think that you have achieved it, you get this overwhelming feeling of happiness, form of bliss. It comes because you think you fulfilled the desire, which adds a little bit more intelligence to our desiring because when we realize it, it's our perception of what's going on 
that gives us our emotions. It's not the reality. You can, you can be at a baseball game and you've wanted your team to win. And it's this time they're going to, you know, it's the last chance to win the World Series while they have one big star and you've been following. I'm, you know, I'm talking like a, someone who was raised in the Chicago Cubs and that's absolutely true. Um, and so you're, you're, you're really into it and you're at the game and for some reason you're distracted right at a crucial moment. And you think, and there's a big tumult and on, on the, on the uh, uh, playing field, and you think that the game is over and that your team has lost, when actually everybody is all, all excited about something else. And for the whole 30 seconds while you're confused and think your team has lost, you're miserable. And when you find out that your team has won, you're absolutely delighted. So it's your perception of the reality that's crucial. It's not reality, which is nice but you can't really play with reality so much that you just try to manipulate your perceptions in order to be happy. That doesn't work out too well. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a nice recipe for, for mental illness in this way. If you try to just rearrange things in a way in your own mind so everything works out your own way. It's a lot easier to be intelligent about how you desire things than to do it that way. So crucial elements discussed. Um, let's talk about happiness, and fulfilling desires, which we're picking. So we think, oh, happiness, you know, a lot of people um, will say, you call things happiness that I would never call happiness. So I think it's really crucial to discuss what it is that I'm trying to achieve in discussing things this way. I'm trying to find an explanation that is true for all minds. All minds. It's the inherent pattern that minds operate on. I'm not trying to, to pick and choose what a good form of happiness is. Not, not immediately. Not for my definitions. Once I have the definitions, once I have the pattern, then I say, well, how do you apply that in order to be more happy than you were before? That's crucial. But the pattern has to include everything, right down to uh, you know when when someone eats something, uh, when they. Uh, even, even destructive desires, when people are cruel to each other. And I'll talk more about cruelty later. But if you want to be cruel to somebody, if you want to cause somebody else pain, you're not happy while they're not in pain. You're only happy when they're in pain because that's your desire. And that's what gives you happiness. But there's a quality to the happiness and there's a quality to the desire. And the desire's quality affects the quality of the happiness. And that's why we can tell when a joke is being told across the room, we can tell just from the quality of the laughter, whether it was a cruel joke, whether it was a sexy joke, whether it was a lighthearted joke, that laughter is created in the people by the quality of the joke. And our own emotions in our own lives, in our own minds, where we experience everything, obviously, in our own heads, um, that quality is, well, it is just as clear, but we are confused by a large number of things as to understanding why happiness is totally in our self-interest and why actually most of the things that have been recommended to us on how to live life better are actually in our own self-interest. And the ones that aren't in our self-interest are actually against our free will and, and therefore uh, get in our way for our happiness and actually cause us to do lots of things we wouldn't do otherwise, except for the fact that they're forbidden. You know, 
by forbidding something, you, you actually make it much more attractive to most people because they want to exercise their free will. And they want to exercise their free will because they have it. And there's no way around that. Now, there's obviously a big discussion in science as to whether free will exists or not. That's another you know, couple hours of discussion. Um, but I'm going to make the assumption for the point of for the discussion that either we have free will or we act as if we do. So it doesn't matter whether it's all uh, you know, determined billions of years ago with the first impulse of uh, the Big Bang. So I'm not worried about that part at all because we experience life as if we do have free will. And just the same thing with the illusion uh, question to metaphysics. It really doesn't matter if we can, the answer to that question, it really doesn't matter as long as we can see what's the actual pattern to the way we personally experience life. So we pick our desires. Can we pick our desires more intelligent? Then I certainly think so. And that's why I call this idea intelligent desiring. We don't have to get down on desiring. We don't have to get down on human life. We just have to, we don't even have to do anything. We can continue on the way we've been doing things. And that's the way most people will. But we can also be intelligent about how we go about pursuing our happiness and therefore how we pursue desires, which desires we pick. Now, there's a quality to the desires, as I was saying just a little while ago, which influences the quality of the happiness. And this kind of quality is not ethical, not moral, not judgmental. It is just what's involved. One of them, one of the qualities is, is the desire fulfillable? If it's not fulfillable, of course, you know, you know there's no point to it. It's just going to make you unhappy. Um, so that's one. And the other quality is, is it productive or is it destructive? So with those two char characteristics, I put the quality of desires into six categories. One is, is it independent and productive? Is it dependent and productive? Is it dependent and neutral? And I'll go into that in a little while. Is it uh, dependent and destructive? Is it independent and destructive? Or is it impossible? Those are the six categories. And I could talk about it for a very long period of time, but I'll try my best not to. Um, so the first category, independent productive desires. Independent, by that I mean you can fulfill this desire independently of any other factor in life. Nothing external to you, nothing uh, except for internal to you is involved in fulfilling the desire. So what desires are like that? One of them is the very simple thing, just to recognize that you're pursuing happiness. It seems like that would be obvious. And in fact, nobody, as I said, can really get around that. But the more obvious it is to accept that this is one of your desires, um, the easier it is to line everything up in terms of priorities. So there's that. Um, you also have the question of, of, of your desire for how you deal with other people and how much control you have over that. Well, you have complete control over whether you want to love other people. Do you want to find pleasure and, 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 and see beauty in other minds that they exist? Well, if you're in your imagination, you want everyone to be as perfect as you can imagine, then you're going to have trouble because you're going to be seeing everybody as failing to live up to your imagination. And so it gets in your way. And therefore, it's harder and harder for you to fulfill that desire because you're imagining something which doesn't exist. You're not being realistic. But if you 
find it interesting that other minds do exist. Whether you do or not, they do exist. So it, it, it's a little bit intelligent to, to find it interesting. But if you find it interesting that other minds exist, and therefore you, you find beauty in the fact that they do, and by finding beauty in the fact, you, you love them, because that's what love is. It's attraction to the fact that there's something beautiful in the world. Then you're going to experience this love in your own mind, regardless of what anybody else does. You can, you, I'm not suggesting, for example, uh, some people suggest that you love the whole universe or you love every being in the universe and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can have a friendly attitude, like, you know, a friendly attitude, sort of like, I'm glad everything that exists actually does exist. Um, but I'm, I'm going to focus on the people that I know and uh, the uh, groups of people that I deal with, that kind of thing. Because it really, uh, you, you can just sit in a chair all day imagining, which is what you're doing, uh, all the love that you have flowing out to all the beings in the universe. Um, and that's probably a nice way to spend a couple of minutes. Um, but it, it doesn't really change the reality of the situation. And, and of course, if you, if you find somebody irritating the, the next day, you're going to be irritated them regardless of whether you spent the day before saying how much you loved them in your mind. So I'm, I'm a lot more realistic than that about it. But I think that there's no real reason not to just have a friendly attitude towards everybody and hope that they're all doing well. And I'll talk about more when I talk about cruelty a little bit later, um, why, why that's a good idea. But that desire is an independent, productive desire. You, you have total control over it. Now, what's not in your control is for other people to love you because it's up to them, totally up to them. And therefore, that is a productive uh, desire, but it's dependent. So that's the second category. You're dependent on other beings or on physical reality. You want to build a house a certain way. Well, you never get it exactly the way you want it, right? So there's a certain wiggle room that you ought to have in order to, to do it, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little while, um, a different way of looking at desire. But dependent productive desires are also very productive of happiness. But you have to recognize that you can't control the fulfillment of them. You can love another person, but you can't make them love you. Now, if you do love them and you pursue trying to make them as happy as they can possibly be, they're probably going to at least like you after five years. Um, so uh, you can do something to instill love in another person, but you can't ever make them do it. It's an interesting part of it. One of the desires that people have you know, and, and quite avidly pursue is power, to have power over other people. And the irony is that it's a totally um, unfulfillable desire. It's impossible. Nobody ever has power over anybody else. So that's the lowest category of desire because it's just going to be frustrating. Now, in your mind, you may imagine, oh, I have power over everybody. You know? And as a parent, you might think, I have power over my children. But every two-year-old says no whenever they want to. And, and all parents know that this, this ability of each mind to say no to other minds is something indelible. Now, if you're enslaved, if you are, you know, in a prison camp, if you are, there's so many things that we do to each other, which is absolutely cruel. And as I said, I'm going to talk about that a little later. But that still is not power over the other person, not the essential element that you can make them do whatever you want, because they can always say no in their minds. And if you manipulate them through pain and suffering, uh, etc., you can get them to do things which they wouldn't otherwise do, build a pyramid, whatever. 
doesn't really make any difference what it is that you set them to. But the moment that they're given freedom, you know, they're gone. How long did it take once Poland was allowed to get a break away from the Soviet Union before everybody else was gone? And how long did it take after that before they stopped speaking Russian in all the schools? Like five days. And why? Because everybody was waiting the whole time they were subservient to throw the whole yoke off. And that kind of, if you want to think that you're powerful and that you've influenced all these things, that's, that's fine, but it's your own imagination. And, and you've done it by manipulating other people's emotions and their fears and their anxieties, and you haven't done it in a substantive way where you actually have power over another person. So it doesn't make any sense for any impossible desire to desire it. So one of the ways to be happier and to be intelligent about your desire is very simple. When you run into an impossible desire, you stop doing it. And this impossible desire to have power over other people, other mother minds, other individuals, is one of those kind of desires. And you can say, why did I do that? I can persuade people to cooperate with me. I can get together with a big group and create an institution, uh, Apple, you know, and, and sell telephones and everything like that. But if you had to enslave everybody to do it, it, you would never have created Apple if you had to enslave people to do it. Because you needed creativity, you needed cooperation. We do much better when people each have their own power. And democracy is starting to show this, but let's not go into politics. Let's go back. So power is one of those desires that's impossible. Another impossible desire, which is, again, something that should be dropped. I mean, most people have long dropped it, but it's a nice example. Fly. You physically fly. You desire to fly. Well, you know, there's still some people who, who hope to fly uh, using mental powers of some kind or another. Um, and, and everyone likes watching Batman and Superman fly around, obviously. But, uh, but those are our dreams. And since we can fly in our dreams, uh, we think we should be able to do it in reality, too. But that's another good example of the difference between our intuitions about life and the physical reality. We can dream all kinds of things that can't happen. The question is, can we make things happen in physical reality in addition to just dreaming about them? Because that focuses in on the reality of the situation. And actually, it's a little bit chutzpah on our part to think that we are smarter than reality. There's all kinds of things like this uh, in, in, in uh, almost every set of ideas that there is. But you can almost always find that kind of intellectual chutzpah or, or uh, spiritual chutzpah about all kinds of things. For example, you know, most religions have got a set of rules that people are supposed to follow. It's like a game. If you follow the rules, you win the reward. If you don't follow the rules, you get the punishment. And almost everybody tries to outsmart the creator of that game, even though they say the creator is at least brilliant, if not omniscient. Um, and so it's kind of ironic that you think you can outsmart him. Um, it sh shouldn't be part of the theory, but that's the way everybody behaves. So uh, there's something about us individually and with our free will, we think we can take on the whole universe and we can, we can beat it at its own game. It's much better to think about, okay, what, what, what's actually the real game that's going on? And, and then maybe we, with the knowledge of what it is, uh, we can play the game a little bit more intelligently. So um, flying is an example of, a, of a, just a neutral physical thing that's an impossible desire. Now, uh, the third category, that's the sixth category. The third category is dependent but neutral. Most physical things are actually quite neutral. Um, which car you buy, which house you buy, um, the, the other factors of how you 
work out your physical environment. They're pretty neutral, but they are dependent upon all kinds of other factors, not only the other people that are involved, but also the physical things. It'd be hard to build a nice, warm, comfortable house all out of huge rocks um, and nothing else, that kind of thing, because the physical properties of the material that you choose doesn't work. So we know, after these thousands of years of being architects, uh, that there are certain rules that are, you can follow, there are certain materials that work better, etc. So we have been sharing our information with each other about the physical reality that we all inhabit, and we're making progress on, as to how we try to figure out how to manipulate that. But interestingly to me, because it's, most of our desires fall into this category, they're dependent on things outside of us, and they're neutral. They don't really have either a productive or a destructive quality to them. And then there's dependent destructive desires. That is, we want to accomplish something uh, destructive, uh, but we need the cooperation of a bunch of other people. And we have to manipulate them in order to get them to do it, or we have to persuade them. Um, it's not that hard to persuade people to be destructive. Uh, a lot of people carry a lot of anger around with them, and you can, you can uh, light a match, and everybody will, will uh, then light their matches, and, and we can burn down all kinds of things real fast. But um, it's still, if everybody disagrees, for example, um, lynching is something that people would cooperate on to be very destructive to somebody and is destructive to themselves as well. And yet, almost everybody in those lynch groups didn't want to really be there. But they're all looking at each other and who, you know, to make sure that they weren't left out of the group. And so it doesn't take too much to manipulate people who are angry and insecure into doing things that are destructive. Um, but obviously the quality of those kind of desires is different than the other ones that I've been describing. And then there's the independent destructive desires, the stuff that's going on in our own head that we use to destroy our, our own happiness. Now, ironically, I think uh, there's no way that you can completely destroy your own happiness. There's always something going on, some small thing that you desire that's actually being fulfilled and so there's always some form of happiness. But, but independent destructive desires uh, cause people a great deal of misery all the time. So those are the six categories. Um, let's talk about how to manipulate our process of, of desiring, how to be better at it. So the first thing is how do we pick and choose what we desire? Well, once we know the categories of the qualities and stuff like that, it would be wise to pick several really big things, big desires in the independent and productive category that we know that we can fulfill because they're independent. It's totally up to us as to whether we can fulfill it or not. Because if you can lay down four or five big desires that are always being fulfilled because it's totally in your control, then you have a base of strong happiness to work from. So there's picking and choosing your desires on that basis. Um, another element, uh, which is part of the impossible desires analysis, is we often say something is a need. We say, we need this. I need to marry that person. I need to go to that college. I need to make a million dollars. I need to be a billionaire because a million wasn't enough. We all can say that. Or, or, you know, in, the, in, in uh, 150 years ago or so, uh, I need to get to California to be part of the gold rush. California or bust. So whenever you 
need something, you've already made it impossible to fulfill in a way. Because even when you fulfill it, it doesn't satisfy you in the way it would if it was not so, if you weren't so needy. Because that need is a different thing. It's a motive. It's a motive because if you don't have that, you're not going to be happy. And it's just, that's just a belief on your part. You can say, I'm going to try for that. In fact, I can put all my energy into it or almost all my energy into it and give it a chance. Um, but all those things are dependent on, outs, you know, on outside circumstances over which you have no control. And therefore, by making it into a need, you've made it impossible for you to be really happy because some of your desires are those motives and th those motives for need will not be fulfilled even if the thing itself is fulfilled. For example, you say, I need to marry this man or I won't be happy. Happens to be Brad Pitt. Well, you know, good luck with that one. Uh, but if you say that to yourself, that you won't be happy unless you marry Brad Pitt, then even if you, you know, stalk him and he's so delighted that you stalked him, that he says, will you marry me? Um, you know, even then, he then, you then have to live with him. And if he's not happy with you personally, then how much pleasure are you going to get out of being married to Brad Pitt? If every day he wakes up and he snarls at you and says, geez, are you still here? Uh, then everything that you wanted out of being married to Brad Pitt pretty much is ashes. And you only thought, I need to be married, but actually, what you wanted, what your real emotion was, I want someone like Brad Pitt to find me so valuable, so interesting, so important that he would like to spend the rest of his life with me. That's kind of what you're thinking unconsciously. But that's not the way it's expressed. And the, what you're thinking and what your motives are unconsciously is the lion's share of what's going on in qualifying your emotions that come from fulfilling or not fulfilling the desires. So. Need is, is one of those things that can also be completely eliminated from the process of desiring and, and only to your advantage. Well, let's talk about motives a little bit more. Ah, an example. You were sitting in front of your TV and you see an ad during the Super Bowl for a BMW. And it talks about how good it is for your family uh, and how safe a car it is and how cool a car it is and that you'll be cool and a great parent and everything else. Um, and besides, there's just a little bit of, you know, and, and you will have reached the peak of success in your life uh, economically if you buy a BMW. So you fall for the advertisement, you go out, you buy a BMW, and you drive it home. And as you're driving down your, your, your street, you know, past your neighbors, you see that your, one of your neighbors that you've been, you know, irritated with for, for a long time, has a new Mercedes in his driveway. And he's washing it off and, and he looks down and says, oh, I see you have a new car. Oh, too bad you bought a BMW. They're not anywhere near as good as a Mercedes. Now, regardless of whether Mercedes or the BMW is the better car, who knows? The question is, how, are, you, are you taken aback by that statement? And if you are, then part of your desire was for other people to be jealous of you for having bought the BMW. Or at least that you wanted to impress the neighbor that you bought a BMW. And then if he says, no, that was a stupid thing for you to do, you, you lose everything that you want of that motive. Now, you still 
can be a good parent. You can still think that you're, you, you've done a safe thing by doing that. You can still think that you reached the pinnacle of success. But this other one little motive over to the side is nagging at you because it's not fulfilled. And this is the way all our motives are. They're the real desires that we have. We don't care so much about the car. We care about all these other things in terms of our social status, and our way of dealing with other people. Our attitudes towards those things that create these motives, that's really what drives us. Everything else is just frosting on the cake. Um, and so it's important to understand that because there are very few desires we can have where you can make all the motives for it fulfilled at the same time that you make the desire itself fulfilled. And every motive that you leave unfulfilled creates a certain amount of unhappiness related to that desire. And this is the complication, I think, that has made it not so clear to us what's really been going on. Because if every desire, we focus on the more obvious desires, but if every desire has uh, you know, 50 to 100 motives for it in different proportions, in different people, and I think that's where our personalities come from, how, how proportionate we, we uh, give in terms of strength and power to each of these kinds of motives that most of us have. Um, so that is a crucial element to adding the coloration to the quality of our happiness that results from life. So the next big thing in being intelligent about desiring is to look at our motives and to see which ones are useful and which ones are not useful. Now, the one about the neighbor is what? It's dependent. It's totally dependent on the neighbor. You're trying to make the neighbor feel a little bit bad for himself that he's not you. And so it's a slightly destructive, it's not a really big deal, but it's a slightly destructive dependent desire. And, you know, that's the kind of quality, even if you fulfill it, that you will get in terms of happiness. It would have, if, you, if you laughed upon succeeding, it would have the quality of a slightly dependent and slightly destructive desire. Now, if you don't fulfill it, the unhappiness has also got the same quality in it, only there's sadness involved or unhappiness involved instead of happiness. Now, the difference between the unhappiness and the, and the happiness in dependent destructive desires is not, not that much different, ironically. So, uh, speaking about ironically, one of the interesting conclusions is that if your motive is, I just want that because I think I'll be happy if I have it, the simplest motive that you could possibly have is most in line with the inherent reason for desires in the first place. And I think that that's why people see little children playing and having a great time and lightheartedly playing. And, and they look like they're having a, a lot of fun and all they're doing is playing in the mud. And that's because they're just simply doing something to have fun. And it's not complicated and they're fulfilling their desire. And that's what gives it the quality, which uh, makes it so attractive to adults who, who haven't had that experience for a long time. So clarifying the motives, I mean, we can go into more detail maybe a little bit later about that. But the next part of it is, if there are so many desires that are dependent, then how do we deal with that? And there's, there's two, two kinds of uh, desire, uh, ways of dealing with it. One I call conflicting, how you deal with conflicting desires, and then how to desire contingently. So conflicting desires is when you have desires which is impossible to fulfill both of them. Um, you want to win the Olympics uh, in ice skating, and you want to be able to do a quadruple Lutz. Um, and 
At the same time, you don't want to practice. You don't, you don't have any time to practice. So you just kind of want to go without practicing. Well, those are conflicting desires. Maybe somebody could pull that off. I don't think so. In any case, almost nobody um, is going to be able to do that without 10 hours a day of practice for years and years and years. So if you have those kind of conflicts, then you have to kind of sort out what's more important to you. And you can sort that out in many, many different ways. And maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. But if you can sort out your conflicting desires, and in this case, even more importantly, the conflicting motives that you have, that's a, a crucial thing for being more intelligent about how you desire. Contingent desires are for all dependent desires, whether they're dependently, dependent and productive, dependent and neutral, dependent and destructive. In each case, if you're pursuing a dependent desire, you should desire it contingently. That is, I desire this to happen if physical reality cooperates, that person wants to do it with me. You know, I desire to marry Brad Pitt if he also wants to marry me, that kind of thing. Because if, and, and just stating it that way doesn't do any good. If you write it down, say, this is my real desire, but your real desire is you just want Brad Pitt and don't, you don't have any question about it, then you're not going to get any benefit out of that. That's just a an exercise in futility to write it down. You need to feel it. You need to desire it from inside that that's the way you want it. And it would be intelligent to do that because, you know, if you want to marry him, you, you're already convinced that you're going to be happy as long as you're around him. But you'll only be happy when you're around him if he's happy around you too. And that's up to him to decide. But once he decides it, everything's fine. You could have a great time. And so that kind of contingent desire, I want to build... Uh, the tallest building in the world. Um, that's, I'm an architect. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to accomplish sometime during my career. That's great, as long as you're desired contingently. As long as you say, I will do that if I can get the resources together, I get a client that's going to do it, or I make so much money myself that I can build the building. You know, all those things that are in the way of accomplishing that goal. So uh, sorting out your conflicting desires, especially conflicting motives, making your other desires contingent, very crucial to being more intelligent about desiring in a way that will give you more fulfillable desires uh, that will produce more happiness. Now, I want to talk about one, not an impossible desire, because people do it all the time, but it's a dependent, destructive desire, and that's cruelty. Uh, why are we cruel? Let's see how much time I have to talk about this. Ooh, all right. So why are we cruel? We're cruel because we want to keep our status in the hierarchy. In our own minds, it's mostly unconscious. In our own minds, we see where we fit in the world. And we want other people to think we're higher than that, um, but we, we kind of feel unconsciously where we are. Now, when something miserable happens to somebody, you can have a, a, a wife who has been very happy and a devoted mother, et cetera, et cetera, and has a good job, and she gets fired. Whether it's from the pandemic or from anything, she just loses her job totally unexpectedly, takes it very hard, comes home, and berates her children, berates her husband. Come on. Why? She hasn't done it before. 
The children don't understand why is mama being cruel and so on and so forth. The only reason for it is because she has to keep her place in the hierarchy. And since she's been made miserable, she has to make other people more miserable in order to keep her place. And this is the source of, I mean, people talk about evil in the world. And I think evil is a very big term and people call hurricanes evil, etc. Hurricanes are, are, are unthinking, we assume. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the physical reality, the way that air uh, moves under certain circumstances with temperature variations, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing involved in trying to give us a hard time. It just happens because of the way physical reality operates. Um, on the other hand, and, and so nobody likes hurricanes and everything like that, but it doesn't cause the same distress as it does when you know that someone's trying to make you unhappy personally. You know that that will make them happy to make you unhappy. That's what cruelty is. And there's lots of petty cruelties that people engage in all the time. Um, but what's ironic about it is it's a, it's a, it's a I'm on the downhill slide kind of attitude. And you want to move other people even further down in order to try to keep your position in the hierarchy so that you feel good about yourself. Now, that's a lot of motives all mixed together in a way which, you know, uh, creates a situation that none of us really would find in our self-interest if we were in a, in, a, in a sharper frame of mind. Because who wants more miserable people around them? Only a miserable person wants even more miserable people around them. If you're, if you're enjoying things, you want everybody around you to enjoy them more too. Um, and so you end up surrounding yourself with misery uh, in your pursuit of happiness. And yes, there's lots of ironies like that in life. That is the pattern of what's going on. It is a complicated thing. Um, but, but those ironies uh, might actually help us in to laugh our way past the, the, the stupid decisions that we've made. We don't need to be punished for being cruel. In fact, I think any explanation which includes rewards and punishments as an explanation of how you'll deal with life is something that's missing the point. Life is the way it is, and it's inherently aimed at experiencing happiness. It's also inherently aimed at experiencing unhappiness as well. But um, because it's set up like that, and who, who set it up, we don't know. Whether it was ever set up, we don't know. But it's, it's just like the, the law of gravity. We don't know whether it was created. We just know it's there all the time. And these laws about how our emotions operate are exactly the same neutral thing. It's not ethics or morality, it's reality. It's just, it's just the way that we operate. And if we can see that it's not in our self-interest, we're much more likely to change, much more likely to change our way of thinking about it. I have an idea called Transcending Cruelty. I gave a lecture on it at the Commonwealth Club a couple of years ago, and there's an audio podcast of that if you want to listen to me talk about that for a whole hour. Um, but the idea that we can transcend cruelty, that we can get over it, I think is certainly in our self-interest, each individual mind in their pursuit of happiness. And no one will reward you for it, but every step of the way of unloading it, uh, you'll have more happiness. That's an interesting part about all the explanations that I give. We have these habits. These habits are very deep in our minds. We hardly know what habits we have, especially with our motives. We're hardly aware of it. You know, people say, this is my belief in life. 
But your real beliefs in life, are you a pessimist? Are you an optimist? Um, are you at all realistic? Do you think realism has nothing to do with reality? <laughs> There's a lot of different ideas that we have about this individually, and we've all got there with our experiences. And it's a good thing that we don't change our habits overnight. We wouldn't recognize ourselves if our habits were changed overnight. You know? So uh, it, it's, it's valuable that our, our personalities are relatively stable, but that doesn't mean we can't take a little bit of charge to them. And as I said earlier, emotions are our automatic responses. So we can't really do much about our emotions directly. But if you change the quality of the desires you pursue, then your emotions automatically shift with them, automatically. You know? And so you, you, you can shift over in that way very easily. So um, I'll wrap this up and get to the Q&A um, by saying that one, you know, there is no rule in life that says you have to be intelligent about how you desire. I think that's fairly obvious. So uh, this isn't like a rule. This is an option. Second thing is, you know, the maxim that I, I, I uh, wrote many years ago and I included in the a description, the real conclusion here is that, you know, there's only one way to get everything you want in life, and that is to be very clever about what you want. Very clever about what you want. That's the thing that we have control over. That's the thing that will be useful to us uh, in pursuing happiness and being more effective at it. All right, uh, George Steffner asked, I sometimes accept self-sacrifice to accomplish something I, through study, believe is worth some psychological pain to me and or annoyance to others. Can I trust my judgment? Uh, I, that's a great question, George. And my answer is, uh, I'm going to quote, uh, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Mahatma Gandhi on that. He said that India ruled badly by the Indians is better than India ruled well by the British. Now, I'm sure he was being ironic uh, being, uh, because he didn't think that the British ruled intelligently either. Uh, but the basic idea for me is every individual will do better pursuing their own desires than pursuing somebody else's desires for them. It's the, uh, it's the other side of the coin of this idea about power. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I said that the motives are your real desires. And I think that this has been the very big problem with giving 12-step, 10-step, 10 Commandments uh, programs to humanity to improve them. Because the person that is saying this to other people. The person who is saying that knows that this makes him happy. But when people obey somebody else, they're not freely willing the same thing. What they're doing is they're desiring to obey somebody else. And that's the motive, and that's the desire that gets fulfilled. So the quality of somebody that's obeying somebody, someone says, love everyone. If they really do have this nice, friendly feeling for everybody, they experience that in a certain way. Somebody who obeys everyone says, yes, I love everybody. Yes, I love everybody. When I hear it takes me. I'm going to try real hard to love them. They're not experiencing the same thing. They're fulfilling a desire to obey. That has a totally different quality, and that's what fools them. And it fools us about a lot of things in life, about our noblest ideals, because the noble uh, idealistic people who gave us our noble ideals, who talked about them, missed this point about free will. And without the free will element, 
you've made people pursue not the desire they say they're pursuing, but the, they're pursuing the desire of obedience to somebody else. And ironically, um, ironically, <laughs> people who are very good at giving you better ways of desiring things, better things to desire, which is why I stayed away from People who are very good at doing that are actually worse for your happiness than people who are bad at it. People who are bad at it, you can say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about then. But if somebody makes consistently better decisions than you do, then you think you have to listen to everything they have to say and your own free will gets weaker and weaker and your obedience gets stronger and stronger. And this is not the situation to get into. A slavish state of mind is awful um, because what you're experiencing is just the pleasure of obedience. That's why I call obedience a vice. Uh, I, uh, virtue is what produces uh, more uh, high quality happiness. Vices produce uh, low quality happiness. I usually don't use either word. Uh, I, I prefer what's effective in the pursuit of happiness, what's ineffective. But uh, obedience is often considered one of the most important things by polit political leaders, by religious leaders, and so on. Uh, but you know, it doesn't make any sense that that's what we should be doing. Um, just obeying anybody, even if there is a God that wants us, you know, that wants us to live a certain way. He gave us also the free will uh, if, he, if he exists and, and did the other thing. So even then you'd think he would prefer somebody who out of their free will did something. That's the parable that I used earlier. So um, the, 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 the real answer, I think, is that, that uh, you, you can say that you must trust your own judgment, but your judgment should never be considered perfect. I think your own judgment is the best thing for deciding everything because you're the one with the experience. You're the one with the emotional reaction that tells you how good you are doing in terms of happiness. And that doesn't mean you don't have to listen to anybody else. N nobody can figure out this whole project that we call life and the universe. Uh, we, we need millions of people working on this and we're making progress. But how much progress have we made? Maybe we know 3% of what our bodies are up to at this point. And if we go real fast, we might get to 10% at the end of another century or two. And I'm 100% going every step of the way on that in every field that we're doing. But we should be modest about what we know and what we don't know, um, because uh, this is something that is a cooperative uh, enterprise. And one person can't do it. I, I, I focus on the principles. The principles are really a good thing to get in line. Um, but the applications are endless, and no one will ever be able to do the applications outside a field that they specialize in, as well as someone that's in it, especially if they all share the same principles that make it work. Um, so uh, the self-sacrifice, one of the things about sacrifice uh, is, I don't think there is any such thing as a sacrifice. You say that there's you know, a certain amount of psychological pain, a little bit of annoyance to others in order to accomplish something. Yes, but you've chosen to do that, to spend that in order to accomplish what you want to. In this case, if it, the, the sacrifice is always less than, than what you're going for. And that's, I think, always true. We always pick what will make us the happiest. So it's a little bit like, you know, you want to buy a, a, a new dress. The dress costs uh, $400. And if you decide, yes, I want that for $400, you sacrifice the $400 that you could have spent on something else. But you get the dress you want. So the $400 is not a sacrifice. It's a trade. And many things in life are much more like, I give up $100 for 1000 um, And it, cruelty will certainly get you someplace. It will make people, you'll be able to manipulate people to do things. You'll be able to get them to build you things. Uh, they, you know, how many people in the government 
get uh, the government workers to go fix up their homes and all that kind of stuff. But it's such a small little thing. It, it actually has almost nothing to do with the motive. It has almost nothing to do with the saving the money or, or, or ordering people around. What it is is feeling I'm more important than anybody else. And that's another thing that we fool ourselves on all the time. We have this idea that we need to be important. And that it's natural. Everybody wants to be important. Everyone sees themselves as the center of the universe and looks out and sees it. But there's a solution to this problem. We use that desire to be more important. That's where cruelty comes from. When we're feeling miserable, we have to put other people down to keep them where our importance is still higher than theirs. Um, there's only, there is a solution to it, but it's much simpler. You just have to recognize one fact, and that fact is we are indispensable to ourselves. Nobody can live our lives. Nobody can think our thoughts, no matter how enslaved you are physically, and even how enslaved you are mentally, say, to some particular uh, teacher or whatever, um, or, or, or to a spouse, if you're enslaved to your spouse. No matter how enslaved you are, you can always say no. You can wake up one morning and say, I'm saying no today. You are never in chains in your mind. Never. Your mind is always free. And so all we have to do is say we're indispensable to ourselves, can't be indispensable to anybody else. They're all indispensable to themselves. But we can be valuable to other people. And being valuable to other people is very easy. All you have to do is give more than you take. Then you're valuable. And you, you can just be a little bit valuable or you can be really valuable to a group or to another group of people uh, or a smaller group of people like your family. And if you do that, if you take it from that point of view, then it's very simple because all you have to do is just give a little bit more than you take. And problem solved, all the psychological problems that are created in our pursuit of being important all go away. Um, but but uh, at the same time, it's a habit, as I said before. You have to take it down one stair at a time, and there's no reason to be upset that it takes a while, you know, because you know, we have our habits, and they're there for a good reason, because we wanted to pursue happiness. So that's those questions. We have some more questions. Uh, I'd like to get to. All right. Here's a question from Teresa Ville in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You dismissed way too quickly the importance of suffering, at least as in making sacrifices for others. From your point of view, what is the purpose of all those sacrifices we all make? Now, I just covered that, uh, Teresa. Uh, there's actually no such thing as a sacrifice. That, that's my point. That's an imagination on our part because we have theories about life that say sacrificing is a good, honorable, and noble thing. But we never do it. Nobody ever has done it. No one has ever made a sacrifice. Everyone's ever, always done things in their own self-interest. Um, they've just been more intelligent about how they define their self-interest. In making other people happy, it's a very intelligent form of pursuing your self-interest. So here's another question. Number two from this group. Uh, this question is from uh, Kelvin Chin in L.A. In my new book, Marcus Aurelius Updated, I have included an essay about how to overcome cruelty. Can you let everyone know that? Uh, sorry, Mr. Chin, but we don't have advertisements like that on Commonwealth Club Lectures. Uh, number three, there's a question from Joseph Kalari in New Jersey. I read your 1981 essay, Intelligent Desiring, over three decades ago and have used a couple of the ideas in it ever since. Why hasn't your book, Rational Idealism, been picked up by a major publisher? Uh, to answer that question, I guess I'll quote Professor Severus Snape. No idea. Number four, a question from Miss Canali in Rome, New York. There's lots of misery out there. Are you saying it is all unnecessary? 
Uh, no, it's not unnecessary. Um, it's because we don't fulfill our desires. And we could be very clever, much cleverer than we are about how, what desires we should have and how we should go about fulfilling them. There's, there's, I didn't spend a lot of time on that. But there's also, especially for physical uh, desires, uh, natural desires, there's ways of going about fulfilling desires. You have to give it the right time frame. If it's a desire that's going to take you know, 50 years, then you have to have that time frame. And you have to say, my, my desire here is contingent upon being able to do this for the next 50 years. Uh, that kind of thing. So that's, that's a part of it. Um, but misery, uh, not unnecessary at all. I, you know, it, I don't think, of course, that life is a valley of tears any more than it is a, 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 a rose garden without any thorns. It's, it's both. It's up to each of us in our pursuit of happiness to, and our avoidance of unhappiness uh, to play the game well. And it's great that we've all been giving each other advice on this because uh, we, nobody would be playing the game at all, even 5% even well at this point, if we hadn't been sharing information. Uh, but we can get a lot better at sharing information. And I think uh, we shouldn't feel bad about it because we really weren't given a blueprint. We weren't given the rules to the game. Um, so we're figuring it out ourselves. It's a very complicated process. Um, but we're doing well. We're doing well. I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll make a lot more progress. Um, and here's a question from Washington, D.C., but they didn't include their name. A lot of misery is caused by people in power. How do you stop that? Well, I talked about earlier that every individual should realize that trying to desire something for somebody else is not really that useful to you personally. That's not going to stop all the other people who, who think it's the way to be happy, to feel more important than everybody else by keeping everybody under their thumb in one way or another. Um, and, and the more desperate they are, the more cruel they are. Um, if people just understood that, one thing, it would be embarrassing to be cruel, I wouldn't. Um, I feel the same way about cheating and lying. You know, if you cheat and lie in any competition, you're, you've admitted to yourself and to everybody who sees you that you don't feel you're competitive. So, you know, you're giving away the game that you're trying to accomplish by playing the game the wrong way. You're not playing by the rules. And it doesn't matter, you know, we've made up the rules that you can't cheat and lie. If you were a Blue Jay, uh, you know, theft would be part of your life. No, no one would be giving you a hard time for stealing other, other birds' eggs. They'd say that's, that's the way to live. Um, among humanity, maybe because we've had some of these noble idealists who've told us what we should be doing, we have all these rules about what we think is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Um, but, but the misery caused by politicians uh, is enormous. Um, it's been going on for thousands of years. We have moved towards democracy where we have a little more control over the situation, can get rid of somebody if they're uh, not doing a good job. Um, but we need to be more confident in ourselves. We need to stop asking for leaders who say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to explain it to you. Just follow me. One of my conclusions is anybody who asks for unquestioned obedience is a highly questionable individual. So um, we shouldn't go there. Uh, and here's a one last question, a question from Beth Miston, Maryland. It sounds like you think misery and unhappiness can be eliminated. Do you really think that's possible? Well, theoretically, yes, because misery and unhappiness is only caused by not fulfilling a desire. And thinking about it this way, the way I just described it, you can imagine getting in a situation where all your motives and all your desires are fulfillable that you desire them either contingently or, or 
You know how to get rid of conflicts and everything. So you really never experience any unhappiness. But that would require an enormous shift in habit to realism about what's really going on in the world and idealism. Um, so yes, theoretically possible. Do I know any individuals who could arrive there within the next 10,000 years? Probably not. So, uh, but it's, it's not required. You know, we don't need to get to a state of perfection uh, in order to have more fun. We only need to take one step in the direction of more fun and we have more fun. So um, that's, that's my idea. My idea is that uh, intelligent desiring uh, can really make a lot of difference, both in cutting down on our unhappiness and improving our happiness. And also on the big picture would, would make for a, a far more uh, social uh, society than we have today. Although we're not doing very badly at all. It, it's tough because we always compare to our imagination of how good things could be. It's much, much more effective to compare it to how things have been. That makes you much more optimistic. If you're always comparing it to how good you think things could be, well, then however much better you become, your horizon goes out, your imagination's horizon goes out even further, and you expect even more. And so you'll never get there. Um, so it, it's, it's useful uh, to not ask for perfection. Uh, that's another one of those impossible desires, which seems like it's been a good thing for humanity. And in some ways it has, it's been at least 80% effective, but it's been about 20% destructive because it is impossible. We haven't achieved it. And just wanting it uh, drives some people crazy and, and certainly irritates a lot of people who pursue it. And it's, it can be adjusted just slightly from perfection to excellence to say, I'll pursue excellence. I know I can't have perfection because there is no such thing that can be defined as perfection. And that's a whole nother lecture. Um, but anyway, uh, that's some of the ideas I have. I really hope that a couple of them help make you a little bit happier. If you, I read, wrote this uh, essay as uh, one of the questioners asked about intelligent desiring. There's a link to it on the description to this uh, talk. It's on my website um, and uh, you can read it if you want to. So I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope at least one or two of the ideas help you be happier. Thanks a lot. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club and it's 119th year of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.